Hi, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl. It is March 30th, Friday, and I'm here talking to a really amazing guest that I actually met a week ago today, Wendy Bihari. She is the uh, author of a book called Disarming the Narcissist, which I have here, Disarming the Narcissist. And so you can only imagine that that is going to be the topic that we will talk about today. 25 years of postgraduate training and advanced level certifications. She has a specialty in treating narcissists and the people who live and deal with them. And so, Wendy, I just want to say thanks so much for joining us today on Wise Girl. I'm so glad that you could join us. Thanks, Francesca. It's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure because, honestly, this is a subject that is near and dear to my heart, but it's also one of the subjects that I feel is very much sort of bubbling up in the world today because we've sort of had this Me Too and Time's Up movement. And when you look at a lot of the men who have been offenders and perhaps there are women out there that we have not heard of as well, but that primarily the men seem to exhibit a lot of the traits of narcissistic behavior that you outline. Yeah, absolutely. It's what brings this term narcissism to the kitchen table these days. It's a much more widely used and more well well beginning to understand more comprehensively what that means to have traits of narcissism or to have a narcissistic personality disorder and we are seeing it in the headlines you know side by side with stories about the me too movement and times up movement and other political issues that are on the table Absolutely. Um, one of the things that you wrote here is quickly, narcissists tend to quickly pull the rug out from under you, reducing you to boredom, tears, apprehension, or disgust without a flinch. You say typically they display 10 of the following 13 traits, self-absorbed, act like everything is all about him or her, entitled, makes the rules, breaks the rules, demeaning, puts you down bullish, demanding of whatever he or she wants, distrustful, suspicious of your motives when you're being nice to him or her, perfectionistic, rigidly high standards, his or her way or no way, snobbish, believes that he or she is superior to you and others and gets bored easily, approval seeking, craves constant praise and recognition, unempathic, uninterested in understanding your, the other person's inner experience or unable to do so, which I want to get into, possibly unable to do so, unremorseful, cannot offer a genuine apology, Compulsive, gets overly consumed with details and minutia. Addictive, cannot let go of bad habits. Uses them to self-soothe and emotionally detached, steers clear of feeling. So those are the ones that you outlined. And out of those uh, 13, which ones do you see the most or all of them? You know, if you think about narcissism as happening along a spectrum, you can see varying degrees of all of them, some more intense than others. But what you'd be looking for if you're trying to decide, am I dealing with someone who is narcissistic? Do they have a narcissistic personality? You know, you, you're definitely someone who is highly self-absorbed, seems to have no capacity for empathy, appreciating the impact of their behavior on others or the feelings of others and what's happening in your skin and someone who has a you know great need for approval and validation well when we met last week at the psychotherapy networker conference and i went to your workshop whereas when i asked you about this uh coming on the show one of the things that came up 
that you did, which was interesting, was this, um, and I don't know what movie it was from, but a clip of Alec Baldwin when he said he was, he was God. He was like a surgeon, a, a medical professional. And I thought it was very effective uh, in terms of then going into a conversation about shame and how people feel shame. Narcissists who are uh, at a very core level ashamed about something, feel like they're a bad person and somehow have to cover up for that in some ways that sometimes externally can seem really successful. So can you talk about the inner core of the narcissist that you find? Yeah, most of the time what you're seeing when you see narcissistic behaviors is you're seeing what I call the masks. You know, it's like a mask. It's a, in more technical terms, it's a mode. It's a kind of a posture that one takes on to cover up this sense of inadequacy and security and shame. At the core of narcissism, what experts will usually find, meaning in the treatment room, when you have the opportunity to dive deeper into what's going on inside of them, what you'll find is a very shamed and lonely and seemingly unlovable little child. And there's a lifetime spent constructing these modes or these masks that they wear that allows them to put out the best facade or the disappearing act or the I'll show you vengeful acts or the I'm entitled and I don't have to play by the same rules acts. And, but they're more than acts because they actually adapt them to personality and believe them to some degree, but they, it's the burden of continuing to carry this mode in place to hide that sense of shame and insecurity underneath. They don't know it. It becomes an automatic process over time that has to be deconstructed, but it is the way they operate. And that presentation can be really hard to penetrate. So one of the things that you talk about is, um, you know, when a narcissist does come into your therapeutic office for counsel, which is not something that happens every day, because oftentimes I would suspect they would say, I don't need therapy. There's nothing wrong with me. Um, then it's the person who's being hurt by their behavior, who, who does uh, somehow get them in because they have what's known as leverage, some kind of thing that is important to the narcissist that brings them into the room to start looking at their behavior and how it impacts others. Can you talk about uh, leverage and, and the people who are affected by narcissists and what they can do? Yeah, that's a, that's a really excellent point that you raise. And it's true, you know, the opportunity for treatment, for change, for transformation of this very complicated personality requires leverage. It means that someone has to have a meaningful consequence that they can put before the narcissistic other in order to get them to agree to engage in therapy. And therapy is really necessary. It's, it's, they don't change just because they wake up one morning and decide that they're going to re-script the way they deal with the world or the way they talk to their partners. So it does take something meaningful, like not wanting to lose a marriage or a relationship or, you know, a relationship with their children or a job, or sometimes it's a legal matter, like a driver's license. It takes that in order for them to be able to at least take the step into the treatment room. And then you've got to be sure you have the right approach and the therapist who can really do the job and understands this personality type. What I love about what you said when we met in the workshop and what you reiterate in your teachings, and I'm sure that you reiterate to the teachings that you offer to other therapists to help train them in this kind of personality, 
is that you yourself as a therapist, and I would suspect you say this to the partners of narcissists as well, who are otherwise dealing with them on an ongoing daily basis, is that you have to be sturdy yourself, sturdy. You have to be essentially grounded, present, boundaried, self-caring, and self-interested, which frankly, and we're just talking in generalities, but men are, you know, more often exhibiting the narcissistic behavior and women more often exhibiting the more codependent behavior that women are schooled and socialized not to have as much of that uh, kind of uh, a stance of sturdiness and a boundariedness. So how do you work with folks who are affected in a way that then the narcissist can hear and respect? Yeah, again, another really good question. And when I work with partners, who are dealing with narcissists in their romantic lives or just dealing with them in their family lives, it does take exactly that. Finding your voice and developing a sturdiness. It's, it's almost like coming to the realization that what you learn to do once upon a time, as you mentioned that socialization process that is part of a culture, that is part of perhaps a personal family, um, modeling in the system, or a reaction to something else in the environment it could be temperament. It's a number of things, but by and large, you're right. It's typically women who are socialized to be more self-sacrificing, more easily subjugated. So it's really helping partners, helping women to find their voice, to empower them to be able to be not angry and aggressive, but assertive and a good advocate for their own vulnerability. And that means having to really protect and care for the most vulnerable parts of themselves as well. This is not, you know, it's not that different when I'm working with the narcissist because I also have to help them to find that lonely, shamed, vulnerable part of themselves underneath that feels so insecure that they continue to have to try to prove themselves to the world or win everybody's adoration. Partners, it's a kind of a different track, but it's the same method you know, of protecting vulnerability and really developing a voice that is representational of their rights and their needs and their hurts and assigning consequences for behaviors that are unacceptable. You know, I loved it when earlier you said that when the narcissist, uh, I'll use the word himself in this case, or, you know, um, that it's an unburdening, right? That it's, that it, it's a burden to keep the mask on, to always have to wear it. Uh, we all, I think, wear masks to a certain degree, women included, um, you know, whether it's makeup and hair and in previous days, corsets and now spanks or whether it's, you know, something else. But we all do certain things to like function and deal with society. But th this is um, a mask that without it, there is so, sort of no endoskeleton, right? That there's no um, uh, fortification internally. And you said that in the, in the therapeutic environment, the, the therapist really, in terms of working with the narcissist, has to meet them by being real. Yes. That the best way for a therapist to work with a narcissist is for the therapist themselves to not only be sturdy, but to be real. So can you talk more about that? Yeah. Well, you hit on all my most important points. <laughs> that These are my favorite points to talk about because they are really the most critical elements in being able to work with this population in treatment and understand this population. So for listeners and people who are watching or listening to this, the understanding of this, although it might seem tedious and why should I have to bother understanding them, you really 
do emancipate yourself. The more you understand, the less you take it personally. The more you understand, the more you liberate yourself from self-doubt and self-blame when it comes to what the narcissist may be putting upon you, you know, foisting in, in your direction. So yes, therapist needs to be real because narcissists are suspicious. You know, they are taught, usually in their early origins, they are taught about manipulation. They're, they're used, you know, and to some degree, they feel used by caregivers, guardians, teachers who have identified them as this sort of the prodigal child, the one who is going to do great things, the one who could be extraordinary. They are the ones who very often a parent is living through vicariously to try to feel good about themselves as a parent, as a person. So they do feel that affection and love and praise is conditioned. It's not unconditional. And as a therapist, the last thing I want to do is show up like another person who has an agenda that's just about me. I need to be real, need to be present, because in order to gain their trust and help them to feel secure and help them to appreciate the care that's going, not for the narcissistic, obnoxious behaviors, but for the vulnerability underneath, you can't do that if you're in some technical mode. You know, if I'm in my therapist mode using therapist language, that isn't very appealing when someone is already so protected against feeling manipulated. Yeah, I love that. And I also love one of the techniques that you say that you use to help not only therapists, but also just yourself as a human being or anyone for that matter, who perhaps maybe is in a relationship with someone who's narcissistic or knows someone who is, is taking a photo of them as a child, requesting one from the narcissistic person, and then um, having that sort of by your side when you're trying to uh, dialogue with this person about what's really going on. How does that work in terms of uh, helping people hold with compassion this uh, sort of wounded, encapsulated child, this inner child, but then also, uh, you know, really working with maintaining uh, boundaries around like what's okay and what's not okay in terms of their behavior. Yeah, and this raises, Francesca, the very important question about how do you differentiate compassion from empathy? When you have a photo, when I have a photo in front of me of a little boy who's four or five years old, and I have a narrative, a story of his life, of his once upon a time, and the ways in which he felt um, burdened and suffered and lonely and deprived, perhaps, maybe even spoiled to some degree, but not with the kind of discipline and affection and love that was necessary that every child needs. When I have that photo in front of me, I'm incredibly compassionate to what the child has endured, what the child has learned to do to try to cope. So the child did a good job of being the super athlete and maybe the super performer in school or the super artist and you know received a lot of praise for these conditions that were met. Problem is he never abandoned that way of coping. So he grows up fast forward to become the adult who's, you know, incredibly off-putting with the constant showing off and self-aggrandizing and look at me and uh, trying to prove himself all the time. And so the photo allows me to re be reminded of the story behind what's right in front of me. It's the backstage story. And empathy is I understand how this led to this. I can see what happened from here led to this in front of me, which allows me to remain sturdy. So when I see the child and I remember the story, and then I see the behaviors that are really off-putting and annoying and hurtful at times, 
then I'm sturdy enough to hold him accountable. Because I can say, I get it. You know, I get it. You were told as long as you did well, you could yell and scream and do what you want and have what you want. That's what you were taught. That's not your fault. I get it. But you can't do that in a relationship with people who care about you. Because then you end up just pushing them away. It's really off-putting. So it's the ability to hold compassion for the suffering part, empathy for the story and how they became who they are, which allows you to be sturdy so you can hold them accountable. Right, right, absolutely. And when you were talking about the conditioning of the narcissist, the maladaptive behavior that frankly, you know, in somatic experiencing work that we talk about, we're like, hey, whatever you're doing now that's keeping you tense or wound up or that's not working in real life, actually was really helpful at one point because you survived. You're yeah. here, you're good in that way. You're still alive. But like you said about the narcissist, it's no longer appropriate behavior for today. And so it's now time to update the software, upgrade the software, download a new version, so to speak. And Dan Siegel talks a lot about this. He's one of your mentors. He wrote the intro, I think, to your book here. Again, Disarming the Narcissist, second edition. Um, and he he was talking about, um, you know, one of his clients, he's written about him named Stuart, who had um, a variety of brain, like neuroscientific, like synaptic, you know, issues. Like there, the left wasn't talking to the right and the right wasn't talking to the, you know, the head wasn't talking to the heart and, you know, but that it was actually part of what was happening with the body and with the mind. It wasn't like a choice every time. So can you talk a little bit about how the programming is real in terms of what our brain and our body and our habits know and to chip away and getting deep under that layer to the neuroscientific part of it may help folks understand that, yeah, it's not just a question of whether or not you're like choosing to be nice to somebody today or not. There's deeper forces at work that require a deeper level of engagement. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, the typical, um, request from a narcissist when i'm working with someone who has really pretty severe narcissistic personality and they come in begrudgingly because they've been told get help or get out and what they'll say is just teach me what to say and i'll say it just teach me a new script teach me how to be nice okay if that's going to get my partner off my back then just tell me what to do and i'll do it and i say look i could teach you and you're probably smart enough to learn it, to memorize it, to mimic it for a while. But the problem is that emotions drive the bus. So, you know, experience ends up in our memory and memory gets activated under sometimes the most subtle of conditions that we're not aware of. So the automatic processes that have been designed since once upon a time where something happens and you react are the same things that will take over once again until we reprogram, we reassemble the way this is organized in your mind. Meaning they have to learn, like most people in therapy, if the therapist is doing a really good job, whatever approach they're using, they're blending in this notion of pay attention, become mindful, be aware of these modes that you flip into. What are the conditions? What does it feel like in your body? How will you identify it when you're there? Because it's so automatic. It's so impulsive. It's so well learned. And the only way to unlearn it is at first by starting to pay attention to it, make sense out of it, understand it when it shows up. You can't count on just new learning, a new script to fix everything. 
And in my experience, a lot of the folks that tend to be more narcissistic are very sort of rational, like they like science. And I'm wondering if you talk about things like, you know, the prefrontal cortex versus the limbic system where the emotional memories are. So, you know, episodic memory, like do you get into these different parts of explaining the deeper layers of um, what research now shows and investigates neuroscientific stuff to help them kind of see it from a perspective of, yeah, it's not just whatever I decide, like you say, I'll be nice. Yeah, it's incredibly important to share with them as much information as I can from a proven scientific point of view. Even anecdotal scientific information is helpful because we're considering and thinking about these possibilities of what happens in the brain. Narcissists, again, remember they're so suspicious. So they'll come in already often with a very tainted sense of therapy you know it's fluffy it's let's blame the parents it's let's just dig back into my sandbox and look for problems so they're they're cynical about this process but when you can add some credibility founded in science and that was you know part of my question working with dan siegel was you know how do we mitigate some of the shame that drives the cynicism, if we can add the credibility of some science, then perhaps I can get them to relax in the chair. And it worked, and it does work. So even simple things like, you weren't born at the age of 45, Joe. You were born 45 years ago, and you had a temperament, and you met an environment, and in that environment, with that temperament and that biology, you had experiences, and those experiences are in your reference library or your memory, if you will. And when some things happen now, smell, taste, touch, feel, sense, that system is alive and vibrating and attaching meaning to everything that happens in your world. So even simple explanations that help them to see that what gets activated is not just a coincidence. It's really coming out of what we remember, even though we may not be remembering it in the moment. Right, right. Um, and it's so funny because I've heard, you know, narcissists, anyone who's sort of in a, in a privileged position, but ignorant in a certain way, sort of say, like, why should I care? Like, I'm not having a problem, right? It's the other people around me who are having a problem. I'm fine. And it reminded me of something that I remember hearing freshman year when I was in my dorm room checking in or that, you know, soon after, where there was this like, you know, captain of the football team kind of a guy. And uh, they were making a joke with a bunch of other people around. And they were like, well, how do you know if a girl has an orgasm? And, you know, they're like, well, I don't know. Like, how do you know? And, and, they were, and he was like, the response was, well, who cares? <laughs> right? Yes, right. So, like, that to me is the, you know, quintessential sort of narcissistic, you know, like, ex you know, thing. And to that end, um, I guess I wanted to, to talk about the societal stuff in terms of narcissism and patriarchy and, and our society that we live in and even our political climate right now and some of the activism around Me Too and Time's Up. But I also wanted to just take one little step back into the issue around uh, vulnerability. You talk about the narcissist um, often being shame-laden and burdened uh, from early on trauma, really, developmental trauma experiences. And often I find they have like a, an avoidant, you know, sort of attachment stance uh, in many ways or aversive or whatever. But you talk about creating corrective emotional experiences without devaluing a highly sensitive individual. What would those 
corrective emotional experiences of essentially reparenting look like? And that's part of the work of schema therapy. And that's the approach that I use in treatment. And uh, this is an evidence-based approach for treating complicated personalities. So creating a, a corrective emotional experience with narcissists particularly would be helping them to experience through this wonderful resource called our imagination, because that's what we use, the imagination, to, to see, to feel, to sense that little child and experience what it would be like to get certain unmet needs met. The need to, to feel love just for your precious little self without having to do anything, without having to prove something, without having to achieve and to be extraordinary. That's the really chief core emotional experience that needs to be corrected. So it's, it's really that capacity to just be in relationship with that child. It's teaching them how from their adult point of view to care for that part of themselves and to imagine what it would have been like to get that need met. For many narcissists, it's also, you know, helping them just to feel a sense of lovability. It's, it's giving them um, a chance to experience what it would be like to uh, have things like affection that was really for them, not for the sake of the parent who was lonely or depressed or needed the comfort of the child, but really feeling like the affection was designed to care and comfort them. Um, it's frustration tolerance, you know, that's a tough one. But so much of narcissism is built on this idea of I can't be uncomfortable and I shouldn't have to be. And so it's really helping them to learn about, you know, being able to sit with discomfort for periods of time and experience some of that and survive it and to see that the world doesn't change and they don't lose their edge and they can still be successful even when they're uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's huge because um, living in a comfort culture is one thing, but not being able to actually uh, tolerate the discomfort, I think, is, is taking it to another level, which is where, as you mentioned, the mindfulness can come in. A, lo a lot of men seem to really fear, like they crave intimacy, but they fear subjugation. Mm. And can you explain how they're like how shall I say it, that, that intimacy and equality actually helps you feel better, regardless of where you are uh, on the spectrum, and that you don't have to hold so tight onto this thing that's been working for you in the past, but not so much anymore. Mm. But so many of them, you know, in their early lives were awkward. They were socially awkward. They didn't know how to connect easily. They may not have had models for it, or it just wasn't part of the reciprocal give and take in relationships that they grew up in. So they're a little weird in school. They may be a little bit more nerdy because they're so smart or because they're so focused on achievement. They can end up being bullied and teased. They don't necessarily attract uh, you know, sexual partners or romantic partners, even in simple ways in childhood. So it's, there's a frustration there too, and a sense of insecurity about their capacity to do so until they've um, achieved, I mean, this is part of a thesis I have about why it happens so much to the, it's happened so much in our political world, you know, and, and it's very sad, you know, intimacy is such, as you put it, Francesca, such a beautiful thing, such a wonderful thing to be able to connect with that raw emotion and that realness of being human. But for narcissists, it's the scariest place to go because it puts them in that position of being ordinary and average 
and awkward as they may have felt before when they were teased. They're not meeting certain marks or expectations. So until they have those power positions, and even then, the intimacy isn't where they engage most successfully. It's the charm. It's the courting. It's the winning people over. And then it's the kind of backing them up or disposing of them when it gets too close because it becomes uncomfortable again. It's archiving memory. Yeah, that just reminds me of like I was saying with the, you know, the attachment theory in terms of the avoidant attachment or dismissive attachment, um, which I feel, you know, in the, you mentioned the political world and also in the dating world, it's just kind of rampant. Yeah, yeah, I I think so. I mean, I think that in the dating world, I mean, so many of my clients who are not not narcissists per se, but they are just people who are out there trying to date. And one of their fears, if they've been already involved with someone with narcissism, is that they're going to run into that person once again. You know, that there it's going to be somebody who's either married undercover or someone who is much more interested in just getting their own needs met, won't be able to attend in intimacy to their needs emotionally or sexually or affectionately or in other ways as well. Yeah, that's it's that kind of sort of easy gratification, me-centered uh, ideology that permeates a lot of the dating world. So, if the promise on the other end of it is more sustainable well-being, what is the carrot to draw the horse to that more sustainable well-being as opposed to that sensory pleasure, immediate gratification? Mm. Well, if there's leverage to get them in to do the work. I mean, once the work starts to take hold, there's something that becomes almost irresistible about the relief of not having to be all things to all people, to be so great, to be the constant center stage performer, the constant achiever. You know, it's they, they can buy one more building, they can own another piece of real estate, but they'll often say, yeah, it's not a big deal. And they're on to the next deal. So it's the ability to actually feel proud of their achievements. They don't have to have regret, but to enjoy it, feel proud of it. And to also, in the same way, feel proud of their capacity to just sit and delight in the presence of their children or their friends or family members or partners. So there's a relief that comes from diving deeper and getting real nurturing and not always having, you know, when you, it's like, I always say, if you know you're fine, you don't have anything to prove. But until you know you're fine, you're going to be constantly on this mission to prove yourself. And it will I, never be enough. I, I absolutely love that because my personal mantra in terms of what I've been trying to share mainly with people is, look, there's nothing wrong with you. Mm, yeah. Like there's nothing wrong with the core of you. We've been conditioned. We have habit patterns we've adopted. And once we become aware of that, we can sort of, you know, change our skill set so that we can live more optimally. Um, but anyway, about surviving. Um, okay, let me take this back. You mentioned the politics. I want to get to two other things. Do narcissists cut across race and ethnicity and economic background? Yes, absolutely. Gender, race socioeconomic strata, um, it, it cuts across all of these elements and no one is immune to, to the possibility of becoming narcissistic. No one is immune, I mean, given certain factors and no one is immune to being attracted to a narcissist. 
yeah, that's that's a good one. Um, if you if you spotted a narcissist or somebody you think might be, if you were talking to say a single woman, would you just say, "Listen, run for the hills. It's not worth your time," or would you say, "Go ahead and tell them these things that you know now that are so amazing that they should know about, and they'll change." Yeah, it depends on what they're working on. If they're working on assertiveness, I say take advantage of this opportunity to hear your voice. You know, to see you being a stand for yourself. Um, I give them a lot of different assessment questions and things to discover. So dating becomes like a discovery mission. See what you can find out about yourself. You know, see how, watch yourself in action. You'll know if it's someone who may be on the narcissism spectrum because you'll see yourself like giving up your rights, agreeing too much, forfeiting your opinions. You'll, there'll be no questions asked of you. And if there are, there'll be no, no, no one will be listening to your answers. So there'll be ways of discovering what you do with that when you're faced with that. Someone who is incredibly charming and heroic and kind of your superhero but how do you feel inside? So it's a lot of noticing discovery of self in the dating world when someone is stepping away from a narcissistic relationship and hoping to find someone new. I love that because I think that with baby boomers and stuff, that whole generation had a different paradigm in terms of marriage and relationships and, you know, sort of suck it up kind of thing. And now people have a lot more choice and it's good to be mindful of the choices that are out there, but also to not be commitment phobic either. So to kind of know sort of how to, how to balance. You mentioned that it also cuts into gender, not just race and socioeconomic class. Talk about the narcissister, the female narcissism. Uh, that I think is is really interesting to to get into because how does she display qualities in a way that a man might not? You know, like how are they different? How could you spot a female narcissist? This is a very popular and important question. Differentiating male from female narcissists is is interesting. I mean, there's certainly plenty of women who can show up and give their male counterpart a run for their money. You know, there are many divas out there who are powerful and pushy and controlling and obnoxious and hurtful and aggressive and abusive and they run the gamut. But the greater differentiating feature that you'll see with women who are narcissistic is what I call the virtuous victims. They are the martyrs. They are the, um, if they're not preoccupied with their vanity and their domestic prowess, which is coming right out of kind of socio-political socialization issues for women, they are coming from this um, position of my pain is greater than your pain. So you get this kind of martyrdom in narcissism that you don't see so much with male narcissists. Women who are, have this will be, you, and we all know them. We may know somebody who said, oh, you think you had a bad day? Let me tell you what a bad day really looks like. You think you're having it rough? You don't know what I put up with. I should have an award for what I have to deal with, with my partner. I should, I should go straight to heaven like a saint for what I go through. So it's, their pain is extraordinary. Their suffering is extraordinary. It's the most extraordinary. And, and it's, it's really insufferable to those of us when you're sitting with someone like this. But the core causes of it in terms of not feeling enough uh, remain the same. Yeah. Yeah, there's this sense of insecurity and this neediness, you know, at the core, this tremendous neediness to have a sense of specialness that was just probably never provided adequately. And so instead of going in the direction of becoming kind of the 
arrogant, aloof, show-offish type, they're, they're doing that, but they're doing it through their pain and suffering. And that's just more typical, this martyrish type that we'll find in women. And going back to the political spectrum and sort of the culture that we live in, you know, can you talk a little bit about what one can do? You know, that you said a lot of politicians, you know, sort of are narcissists and, and uh, what can we do about that? <laughs> that's the real, that's, that's the amazing question, right? With no, no great answers to it, except I think the more we understand it, again, understanding and insight doesn't change everything per se, but it does, it is the first step to kind of liberating yourself from this feeling of blame or this feeling of um, total helplessness. I think when we get it, when we can make sense out of it, it enables us to be able to address our own communication with people like this in our lives. How we affect it on the larger level, on the political level is a, a bigger challenge. And it comes down to things like, you know, like what you're doing, you know, speak out, communicate, educate people. Education is so important. Spread the word. Talk about what matters. Get your voice out there. Be vote. You know, get involved in in um, issues that are important to you and to others around you, because that's what's going to you know. If it's if it's one thing that narcissists want is they want the credit for really good ideas that may not even be their own. So if you have a great idea if you, you know, we look at these kids rallying against gun violence and we hope that what will happen is that those with the big, you know, egos who want to be elected or reelected will take that seriously enough to make it their platform, make it their idea, what wouldn't otherwise have been theirs. So appealing to the ego of narcissism by, you know, gifting them some of these ideas so be it. If it allows them to do good, if it allows them to do the right thing, that that ain't so bad, right? <laughs> right. No, exactly. And I mean, I know at least one uh, person who is in a long-term relationship with someone who's a narcissist who very much would sort of preemptively, uh, you know, give the person something that was pleasing in order to quell the waters so that there would not be the storm, you know. And uh, I think that uh, without getting into too many politics, I think that that's why certain people not no longer being in uh, the White House is is concerning to to other people because they were more the placators uh, of of certain kinds of situations that may have been helpful. Um, you know, in, in terms of where do we go from here? Having this conversation seems to be you know, it's a political conversation, it's a personal conversation, but would a narcissist ever look at this conversation and say, maybe that's me, maybe I should listen to what, or would that just be like, nope, they would just go right by it and say, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now more days than ever, they might actually be able to see a little bit because someone has probably been poking them with the word, you know, narcissism, or you're too self-absorbed, or something but still it's it's most likely they would look at this and say oh i know somebody like that you know and it wouldn't be themselves it would be they'd be seeing it as someone else because their you know their style is to basically look for fault and blame and uh, causation in others not within themselves very well, hard for them to go there because of this fear and this feeling that any responsibility they take for an action that causes harm 
that hurts makes them the bad guy. And I don't mean just a little bad, really bad, really intolerably bad. Okay, that actually dovetails perfectly into what I was going to ask about narcissists not being able to be empathetic toward other people. They can't witness another person's suffering. Is that because they can't imagine, as you were doing this imaginal exercise with the narcissist in terms of imagine yourself getting the love that you need, is it that they can't imagine that they were worthy of that, that they can't imagine that they are a good person, that they don't have, as you said, this idea that like, I'm okay, and so therefore it's impossible to ask of them at this stage when they're still stuck in deep narcissism to be able to extend that to others? Yeah, really, it's an inside-out approach. And until they can really get acquainted with understanding and making sense out of their own makeup, how they're put together, and able to empathize, meaning a deep resonating feeling of, ah, yeah, that's what happened to me. I can see little me back there, you know, learning how to adapt to an environment that was challenging for me. And until they can do that and really honor their story, it's very difficult for them to look inside someone else's life. You may get fooled at times and think, well, they're doing it, but you've got to always ask the question for whose benefit, you know, because they like being heroes so they can come to the rescue and appear to be wildly compassionate for you. Uh, But it's usually at their convenience. So you want to be very careful not to get, you know, not to get tricked or blindsided. Yeah, so that it's not a ruse. How would you know? You'd look for patterns, you know, you'd kind of look for some patterns. When you ask them for uh, a favor or you ask them to try to understand, I mean, the best way of knowing is when you point out something that they've done that's disappointing or hurtful to you and you watch their reaction to it, are they capable of just a genuine, sincere apology? Or do they get defensive and start blaming you and calling you too sensitive? which is their favorite thing to do is call everybody too sensitive and make it someone else's fault. So the best test is what happens when you express your own disappointment in their actions, because they're great coming to the rescue if it's someone else who's hurt you or something that you're struggling with that they can actually fix. That's so interesting. Um, what, What percentage of the population do you think is narcissists? I think it's it's a hard it's a it's always an interesting and good question but a hard one to answer. I mean for a long time, you know, up until 10 years ago the statistic was about 75%, well, this is a different statistic. 75% of narcissists are men, maybe 25% women. I think probably it's a little more equally balanced than that. Of the total population, I think there's probably some degrees of, we could probably all plot ourselves on the spectrum somewhere from time to time. Situations where we might get a little self-absorbed and call it a narcissistic moment or a narcissistic phase. To really have full-blown traits of narcissism, they need to be patterns that are occurring um, that, that probably occurred early on in life from early experience were developed as constructs or ways of coping and then became traits of personality and ways of being. And you're really looking for patterns over time. And as you mentioned in the beginning from what I listed in my book, there are certain certain numbers of patterns, you know, that you're going to see or signs that you're going to see that will help you to see that more clearly. I do think that we're probably a bit more of a narcissistic culture here now than ever before. 
with the whole dawning of, you know, technology and selfies and social media. And it, it just kind of uh, enables and encourages more self-consumed activity. <laughs> I, yeah, it's no offense to her as a person, but I, the Kim Kardashian is it, Kardashianization of uh, of America or of the world for that matter, um, yes. turning you know sex tapes and selfies into a half a billion dollar business. I mean, yes. it's no joke. Yes. Uh, but at the same time, to what end are we collectively healing society? Because we have a society and a culture that is in need of communing and narcissism seems at its very core a very sort of autonomous individual and separate existence. Exactly. I don't need anyone. You know, I don't need people. Or as you were saying earlier, I don't care what others think of me. You know, to which only a therapist who has a pretty secure bond can say, knock it off. Of course you do. We all need people. We're human. We're we're wired to be connected to one another. That's part of our humanness. Um, but that's that's a tough one to take on just in the everyday world with the narcissist. And, you know, I think sadly that autonomy and that um, patriarchy, which has dominated our culture for such a long time, we're seeing that in very bold colors right now in our country. And it's, you know, the exploitation of women. Well, on the one hand, we have these wonderful voices of women speaking aloud with courage, you know, coming forward and saying no more and time's up. And it's exciting, you know, to, to sort of see this happening and to see awareness growing and more care being taken to what's being, you know, put out there in the marketing media, the advertising media. But, but then again, there's another message that's filtering in from the top for those who are still kind of blind, blind followers, I call it, um, of, you know, that, you know, women as property, women as objects, women as, as exploited. And so it's worrisome. It's a very confusing message, I would imagine, for very young people right now. Well, we're not confused about the fact that you know a heck of a lot about narcissism. Wendy Berry's book, Disarming the Narcissist, is available um, on Amazon or wherever else you like to buy your books and on her website, which I will post along with this. So, Wendy, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. And uh, I think it's really topical and timely and hopefully can, can help people. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, Francesca. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And this is really marvelous. Your questions were so beautifully stated and so important. So thank you for that. Thank you. I will let you go. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Bye-bye.